Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid, and I have a very special guest today. Today, we have Ovi Vitas, EVP and Chief Marketing Officer with AmeriLife. How are you doing today, Ovi? I am doing well, Oz. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to, to speak today. Be I'm, really exciting times. Yes, I'm excited to have you on. It's not often that I have somebody whose first name begins with an O and it's three letters. I got you beat by one letter. So we got Ovi and Oz. Maybe this can be a standing podcast. We'll figure it out. Let's we'll see how we'll this one goes. So, we'll just call it oh, No, we're ready to go. Here we so, go. Obi, listen, man, you have had a really extensive career in a bunch of different industries. You've worked, obviously, at AmeriLife, Marriott, Reebok, Warner Brothers. You were at EA Sports. You went to Cornell and Vanderbilt. You are on the executive member of the Latino Corporate Directors Association. So you've done a lot throughout your career. I'm really interested, as we learn about you and marketing and your philosophy on marketing. First off, how has being in all these different industries shaped who you are in terms of your executive level marketing career? Yeah, it's a great question. I appreciate it. And it has been at quite a few companies and experiences. And I actually reflect back on that frequently. And I'm, I'm proud of it more than anything else. And the reason is it's given me perspective on a lot of things, perspective on how I work, perspective on how I work with others, perspective on how I think about marketing, perspective on how I think about customers, perspective on how I think about clients. And I always, I tell my team this and anybody, frankly, who will listen is if you have perspective, then you've got a lot of it. And for me, I can't get enough perspective of the world. I really can't get enough perspective of all these things, whether you're working in the pharmaceutical space or you're working in the video game space, or you're working in the entertainment space, you're working in the apparel and shoe space, or you're working in the hospitality space, all those different verticals bring different challenges. And those challenges are all shaped and informed by different perspectives. And so for me, I think that's probably the most critical and important thing. I wouldn't say that I reflect back on one experience and say, use this blueprint to use your job or run your job today, because that's the right way. It's like an amalgamation of all these different experiences that I've had, where I can reflect back and say, when I delivered something this way, the reception was this, or the reception was that. Um, hey, when I'm thinking about going to market, I frequently re reflect back on my product marketing experience and how I talk about the technical specifications of whether it's an insurance product or a shoe or a video game. That's a, an important perspective to have when you're going to market with something different for brand, different for data. I would say more than anything, if I haven't said it already, it's about perspective more than anything else for me. I love that perspective. And I'll tell you this, I, I think that in an area that demands so much creativity, like marketing, if you are just looking at things through the vertical, I have one vertical and you're looking at it through one customer point of view, I think you're really limiting yourself, especially as things continue to innovate and change and different things stand out. There's of course, core marketing principles that span across all industries, but there's got to be different aspects of different industries that you've probably taken into each job where it's really helped. I mean, looking at the eyes through a video gamer versus somebody buying life insurance versus somebody buying athletic apparel. There's probably some things that you can drive out of that from an innovation perspective that allows you to see things through that different and unique perspective like you spoke about. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. The other interesting thing too is as different as things are, many things are very much the same. And for me, it's all about the simplicity of communication, which is mm. a really hard thing to do. Yep. It's hard to talk simple. Um, so when you're talking about complex things like 
video games are complicated. And technical aspects, again, of shoes can be really complicated when you're talking about rope grip and synthetic fabrics and lace, just different things. Or you're talking about insurance, which is super complicated. Or you're talking about the hospitality space or timeshare, whatever the case may be. The hardest thing you can do is synthesize the information in a way that makes it digestible and easy for the recipient, customer, client, business unit, sales team, whatever it is, to help understand and get your point across. We always talk about selling and telling and when's appropriate to sell and when's it appropriate to tell and when's it appropriate to do both. I would say that's the one uniform aspect of marketing that continues to be have a prevalent role in whatever job function one happens to be in. It's the ability to synthesize, distill down information and help make the complex less complex. And that's something I think I can always continue to get better at, but something I put at the forefront of my mind every single day I wake up or every single time I'm having a communication much like I am now. Love that. I think the simplification aspect is something that, listen, I've never been confused for a marketer, but it's something that I've learned and gained more experience on over time. And listen, I've definitely been someone who can be accused of using a thousand words when I could use 10. So that <laughs> idea to distill something into its most simplest form and reach masses is something that is a real key part of marketing. So I appreciate you saying that. Seep, speaking of that, we can tend to overcomplicate marketing a lot. And you mentioned in our pre-conversation that going back to the basics is important. What do you mean by those basics and why is that important? Yeah, when I think about going back to the basics, for me, again, it's without getting too heady about it all, but like the brand matters because the brand is the manifestation of all these different parts put together. Yes, there's a logo. Yes, there's colors. Yes, there's taglines and copy, but there's also the experience, there's customer service, there's expectations of what the website should be and feel like and truly feel. So when you go back to the basics, it's all about leaning into an insight that a customer has. I think the food at Taco Bell will be X. I think the food at a three-star Michelin restaurant will be Y. So the question always comes back to what's the customer expectation? And that's always born from an insight from the customer. That's what I mean by the basics. If you understand the customer insight, you're halfway there, in my opinion. But getting to the insight is oftentimes something that's overlooked by businesses, business units, marketing included, and oftentimes isn't super easy to get to. That's why I think it's really important to be out in the field. It's really important to get customer feedback. We can talk about different feedback tools and mechanisms, but understanding, and when I say customer, again, a direct-to-consumer customer, a B2B customer, a B2B2C customer, any customer, it's really understanding not like what you need to execute on or the deliverable, but it's understanding the why. Simon Sinek talks about this all the time, but the why behind the deliverable, the why behind what it is you're looking to create. Because if you can do that, um, then everything else should manifest from that. But if you miss that basic piece, it's like building a house without putting down a foundational element, it could crumble. And that's why I think it's so important. And again, we all lose sight of this because it's easy to, because we're in the day-to-day -day of just delivering stuff. I think it's really critically important to make sure that the basic, in this case, the consumer insight or the customer insight, I should say, is a foundation for all things moving forward. I really love that. Listen, marketing has gotten more complex over the last decade. There's been a proliferation of analytics. You can lose sight of really what's the most important thing, which at the end of the day is those customer insights that that being customer centric. And so I think that's a really key thing that you point out. Can you tell me some of the customer centric programs that you've built throughout your career that maybe you really stand out to you or that you're really proud of? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I will tell you that customer centric, it depends on obviously the industry you play in and what it is you're looking to accomplish. But sure. I guess it's most um, 
basic terms. So if, if you think about customer centric, so think about Reebok. So when I was at Reebok, I managed the CrossFit business and the CrossFit community is a very tight knit community. They've got a, I wouldn't call it a singular focus, but they have a very core focus of, of things that they are really proud of and responsible for self-care, holding themselves accountable, holding their peers accountable. Obviously fitness is a big part of that, but the community shares those values. So the community is a really a cornerstone of how CrossFit community thinks about everything, products, workouts, programming, the games, how they want to represent themselves in the greater public. So the insight there is the community is everything. So what does that mean? When you're going to market with something, you better make sure that you are eliciting feedback or soliciting feedback, I should say, from the community. And you're also making sure the community is part of the journey of whatever that journey is. So in this case, there's a shoe called the Nano. The Nano is very much a part of the CrossFit community because it was built for and by CrossFitters, which is a shoe. And so when we would think about the next iteration of the Nano, we would do it by tapping into the community itself. So we would look at the top tier athletes who, by the way, have a large following and social in the, within their communities and also have a lot of respect from their peers and from those that look up to them. And we would sit with them and say, how can we make the shoe better this year? So now you're implementing the product team, the marketing team, the social team, the community team, and they're sitting with you and they're helping you create and make a better product for their consumers and their customers. And they're trying it out. And of course, we're capturing all this and we're creating great content that ends up being marketing material. But it's almost like an aside because we're still talking about this insight that the community is everything. So we can go to market and say, this shoe is created by people in the community. So when we talk about the shoe itself, we can say this was born from the community. It was born from the athletes. But then when we go to market, we would think about how do we market this product? And one of the things we would do is say, okay, we know the community has a voracious appetite for this content and the shoe. How are we going to launch this? And so we would do these drop kits with the top, I think it was 50 athletes within the CrossFit community who we would then send these boxes out to, they would unbox them. The boxes were effectively built for social media. So they could actually stage the shoe on it. They could take Instagram pictures or whatever the case may be, put it on their channels, get people to pre-order those shoes before they actually shipped. So we were developing not only a nice database of people who I would say are highly, highly indexed CrossFit fans or Reebok fans and or Reebok fans, and so while you're building up this database, you're also engaging community because you're using these social leaders to say, we've got something new that we've helped to create that we're going to bring to market. And then 24 hours before release, we give an open access window just for those that have signed up to learn more about it because they've pre-ordered or they've pre-registered because they've learned about this product from the athlete who, by the way, helped design the shoe, who, by the way, is part of this community. And that led to one of the best-selling shoes that Reebok's ever had, largely because, again, the execution, sure, it was really good, but it was because we started with, we need to start with the community. Why? Because that's the insight. So that to me is one of my favorite examples. I really love that. I'm curious now. I'm just thinking in my head, obviously it's not a direct one-to-one -one competition in the CrossFit space, but you got a couple of behemoths like Nike and Adidas sure. in that space. You've got up-and-comers like Under Armour and OnCloud. How much are you, as a leader in marketing, how much are you paying attention to your competition and what they're doing? Or are you really living in your vacuum and keeping it focused there? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Again, that's a uniform answer regardless of the business. We're always looking at the competition, whether sure. it's insurance, whether it's shoes, whether it's hospitality, whatever the case may be, always look at the competition because, you know, one, if you're not, somebody else will get there. And two, is a, it's a good accelerant 
It's also a good source of fuel to make sure that we are continually pushing ourselves to be better than anybody that's out there. And we not only look at our competitors, we're looking at adjacent spaces as well. Again, with Reebok, it's looking at, this was early days when I was there, but it's looking at the fitness space more generally. So mm -hmm. what's going on with in-home exercise equipment? What's going on with in-home exercise programming? How are we thinking about that? And the same is true for insurance today. So we focus in AmeriLife today on senior market largely for, I'll call it health insurance products, as well as wealth insurance products. You can think about that, like financial instruments, like annuities. And of course, we're looking directly at our competitors, but we're also looking at adjacency and really more holistic solutions for how people think about, in this case, retirement, right? So I'm getting ready to retire. How am I thinking about it? And if we thought about it as siloed in terms of we sell Medicare insurance, let's go down this path, or we sell wealth products, go down this path we're shortchanging ourselves. So we have, we've taken a concerted effort to look at the retirement sort of life cycle as a whole. I'm 40 years old. I'm 50 years old. I'm 60 years old. I'm seven years old. What are the things I'm thinking about as I'm entering into those sort of like stage gates throughout my life? And then where are the solutions that we can provide? So as opposed to pushing the product first, we were thinking about where's the customer in their journey and what products do we have or what things do we have that are available to help service them along their journey? And not only in terms of products, but also how and where they can access those products, which we can also talk about. But it's definitely, and I think marketing's changed from that capacity. People are thinking more holistically about decisions just because there's so many more options for them to choose from and so many more mediums from which to get this information that if you're not thinking about it more holistically, you're probably shortchanging a lot of things. Yeah, I find this fascinating. And listen, we talked a little bit earlier about, now listen, I'm really passionate about how in my industry, people analytics is fundamentally changing the way that we evaluate how we hire, how we retain, how we develop our employee base. Obviously in marketing, this has been going on for even longer. We've seen cost of acquisition of a customer. We've looked at lifetime value of a customer. There's even deeper analytics in this space now. What are some of the analytics that you see as maybe some of the uh, the hot trends or maybe the ones that you're looking at now that maybe you weren't looking at a couple of years ago at AmeriLife or in organizations in general? Yeah, at AmeriLife, we look at data it's lifeblood. So I would say that's the first thing. Analytics we're looking at, again, it depends on what it is you are looking to do. So if we talk about consumer insight, then there's some kind of a hypothesis you want to test with that consumer insight. So those usually look like campaigns. Let's try this campaign. Let's try that campaign. Based off of that campaign, you're measuring, you're iterating, and then your wash, rinse, repeat. Again, nothing new that's been going on since the dawn of civilization as far as marketing is concerned. Now we just have fancier tools to go and do that. Sure. But I'll tell you specifically in AmeriLife, and I would say probably more broadly speaking, unit economics matter more than they've ever mattered before. So you talk about LTV. We look at LTV all the time. We What's the lifetime value of a customer if we get them on this type of policy or that type of policy or we sell them this product or that product? Not because we are looking to get the highest LTV. That's a great outcome. We're obviously trying to put people on the right in this case, product, right? So whether it's Medicare Advantage or Medicare Supplement, we're looking for the right product, and then we can associate an LTV with that. But we're also looking at our CPA or our CAC, cost per acquisition or cost of acquisition. That's a really important one for us. This is a top-down approach. So we're looking at the bottom of the funnel here, like how much did it cost to acquire this consumer and what do we think their LTV is going to be? And then if we go on up, we start to look at I would say right now we've got probably 42, 40, 42 different metrics we measure between wow. seeing an ad to somebody buying a policy today within our direct-to-consumer business. But the types of things we look at, again, going from the bottom up, I know how much it costs to acquire this customer, but what's our conversion rate and what's our conversion rate with these types of agents or these types of mediums that we're pushing our things through, by the way, 
that customer at some point was a lead. I'm going up this funnel again, right? So we converted that lead, but how much did it cost to get that lead? So we're looking at the cost of that lead and what's the mechanism for doing that? Are we doing a mail campaign, which is more of a CPM model, or are we doing a a CAC or if we're doing a, a paid social or a paid advertising model, that's more of an auction-based model. And if you go further up from there, we're looking at things like general awareness, general visibility, reach frequency, things like that. I would say historically, people were probably most concerned with the top of the funnel because we didn't have the tools to measure with this level of fidelity. People were like, did I reach my customer? What was, how often did I reach my customer? Did my customer see my ad? And did they respond to it? In mail, they've been doing response rates for a long time. Clearly, we measure response rates also. But the level of fidelity you can now get with tools like really any sort of visualization tool, like a Tableau or any product that's going to allow you to get access and visibility to this. And now with the sophistication we have with building out EDWs, enterprise data warehouses, and being able to connect that data to these things, it's a whole new game. And aside from just measurement, there's a whole machine learning aspect, AI, all that stuff, which we can talk about, which is helping us to hone our advertising overall to make sure that going back to the hypothesis test iterate framework, we are able to do that in a way that is not manual <laughs> and allows us to scale more quickly because historically it was send out a piece of mail, let's wait for it to come back in and see how we do. And then it was, all right, there's digital ad. Let's see how the 728 by 90 banner ad does. Who clicks on it? What's our click-through rate? Then it was like, all right, they're getting on a form. What's our fill-out form rate? They're filling out the form and then we get into retargeting and remarketing. And there's, that's what I mean. There's 40 some odd steps that we measure throughout that journey. But the unit economics is the headline there. Like the ability to measure at a customer base level, especially now again with things like customer data platforms, which is now a single source of truth for customer CDPs, are things that are, I'll put the quote, relatively new in the marketing ecosystem and such such an incredibly exciting time to be a marketer. And that's talking about all the nerdy stuff, not even the fun artistic stuff, which is a whole nother ball of fun. Wow. The level of detail you got in there. You could go pay half a million dollars for a marketing degree, or you could just listen to this podcast. <laughs> And you're going to get at least 80% of the way there. That was some great that. stuff. Yeah. That's some inside baseball stuff that I love, love. Yeah, Thank sorry. you for sharing I don't need that. to get too detailed. I hopefully that's... No, I got a master's in marketing now, man. I love that. That was good stuff. I want to ask you one last question before we get into the hiring questions. Sure. In our prep combo, you've obviously worked at EA. You mentioned yeah. that video games are leading the way in the marketing space. Yeah. I found that super fascinating. Can you tell us yeah. more about that? Yeah. Look, they're leading the way in the marketing space when I was there. And I haven't been to video games for a little bit. So I imagine that things they're doing now are just astronomically amazing. But I will tell you, you know, just a funny story, not a story, but an example. So when I was at Warner Brothers, we worked on a bunch of different IP. We worked on Lord of the Rings, Dungeons and Dragons, DC Comics. And one of the games, which by the way, wasn't successful, but a great story, a great learning experience. Why it wasn't successful is probably another podcast. So we attempted to go up against this game called League of Legends, which is a huge yep. game. It's a MOBA, multi-online battle arena game. And we created a DC Comics themed game, which was a MOBA. So it was meant to go head to head against it. And the decisions we made on not only what to market, but how to build the game were almost entirely built off of data analytics. By the way, the game didn't fail because we were too heady about the data analytics. It's an entirely different reason. And video games are just, they're a hit-driven business. You, you, you smash it out of the park or you don't. But just to give you an example of some of the things we were doing, this is in 2012, we would look at, so let me take a step back. 
the games we all um, sold were free to play. So one of the first free to play games to market was a game called Lord of the Rings Online, free to play. Kind of a, a very provocative marketing approach because it's free. We're not going to charge you anything to play this game. Well, it turned out that we actually made more money making it free because of the following. So the way you'd make money in free-to-play games is not unlike the way you make money in a lot of games today. If you have kids, my son is a huge FIFA player. I don't know, know how much money we spent on FIFA Ultimate Team, but there's microtransactions, right? In those cases, those are purchases, but there are other things called microtransactions. And that was a big deal in Lord of the Rings Online. So we would sell loot inside of the game. We'd sell a shield, a sword, potions, cloaks, things like that. And they were nominal amounts of money, but the volume added up and it, it can, turns into real money soon when these people are doing these microtransactions in game. The other we would do is through expansion packs. So we'd create new maps and they would be standalone expansion packs. Putting that aside for a second, the microtransactions were really an interesting case study because what we would do is we'd look at the gameplay style behavior and then we would actually create personas of different types of game players, defensive style player, attack style player, hybrid style player, and based off those personas, we get the insight. The defensive style player likes to obviously play a more defensive style posture. So we are going to think about our pricing strategy and our loot strategy or drop strategy for all these available downloadable content pieces, which is what we sold. And it would all be informed off their gameplay style behavior. So we would send out marketing materials, advertisements, emails, and actual yeah, um, downloadable content DLC that would drop inside of the game to those players based off of their behavior style. And that's just a ton of telemetry data, a ton of gameplay data that's being aggregated inside of a data warehouse system. And then being able to go to the data team and saying, Hey, what's going on with the player behavior? Do things change time of day of week? So not only we knew what was to create and what prices to sell them at or test the pricing selling strategy at, but also we started to get information on like, when's the best time to reach these people, message these people in game, out of game. This is all based off of an ecosystem that we created, which is the game itself. So it's a really interesting way to think about, obviously we're providing hopefully a ton of value in terms of the entertainment factor, but we're also, we're in a relationship. We're going to provide entertainment value. And at the same time, we're going to be collecting data. And that data is going to help us inform and shape a lot of things in this case, marketing and content that we would price and sell within the game itself. Yeah. So a couple of things I can see how that can translate across a lot of different boundaries and marketing going forward. So I think that's really insightful stuff there. And obviously if the metaverse actually ever ends up taking off, like Zuckerberg thinks it will, that'll play a big part in there. There'll be a lot of advertising there as well. We know that. And then lastly, let your son know my FIFA handle is at MSH 24 seven. That's with a dash. Uh -oh. If he wants to get a game, I'm here, here for it. Okay? Just... Who's your team? <laughs> I like Liverpool. It's my favorite team. Oh, so he's a Man City guy. So I think, I like, I imagine you guys will be online here in a little bit. He's a Man City. Okay, favorite. listen, right after the podcast, I'm logging on. Tell him to get ready. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So listen, we're a hiring podcast, so we got to yeah. talk about hiring. I know that you've probably been involved with hundreds of hiring decisions throughout your career. Where did you have the biggest team? Is it at AmeriLife or did you have bigger teams than maybe another company? Marriott. Marriott was big just because it's global footprint. So we're six continents. I don't even know many countries, but and multiple brands, all offices. And that team was about call it 200, 250 overall. Wow. Yeah. Did you get involved like intimately with most hiring decisions or did you let your team handle that? Or what was kind of your philosophy there? Yeah, I think for certainly for senior level positions, I was pretty intimately involved for maybe, excuse me, more junior positions, probably less involved, not because I don't think it was unimportant, but with the size of that team, it becomes a little challenging sure. 
to be fair to their schedules and my schedule to make this thing happen. And then there were like very specialized skill sets that I would insert myself. So like an SEO specialist, I would want to actually have a conversation with him or her for that type of an interview. I would say maybe like a, a lead copywriter, like very, they're all important, but very thick skills. Visible. Set. Yeah. Visible and very specific. You think about something like SEO, like it is really hard to stay on top of that. And it's a very, very, it's a skilled practice that it, you just must always be in continuing education in order to stay on top of it. So there's things I'm looking for in that role for specific, not only skill sets, but personality site, tenacity, obviously being one. Let's dive in there then. So in yeah. terms of the type of behavioral characteristics of people that you want to hire, maybe an overall hire, hiring philosophy, what are the type of people that you like to have come work in your organization, your team? I hate to be the guy that says this, but I'm going to say it. grit is for real. I just, marketing is a service. And so because you're servicing customers, not all customers are the same. And so if you're the type of person that can easily get offended, or you're the type of person that's, I was just doing what I was told to do, like that, not a great fit for our culture. I think grit and the ability to roll with the punches and the hands-on mentality, no matter what level you're at, is something that I I would say is like a uniform characteristic. The other one is more of a, a personality trait. Going back to the whole perspective piece I was talking about earlier, we just did a disc assessment with my team. And I would love to say that I hired this on purpose, but it wasn't the case. It just ended up being the case. DISC assessment, if you think about the different types of personalities, also DISC or MBTI or, or pick your personality and working test. I happen to just have like equal parts DISC in the organization. Ooh. Yeah. I I wish I could say that's exactly like I knew what I was doing, but I, some of that I think is just experience, innate what you're looking for and how you think things are going to gel, but it's always good. It's something I try to do pretty regularly is a, an assessment to make sure that the, the, the culture and the types of interactions we can expect between folks make sense. So I do look for a diverse personality group. I like disruptors. I also like people who are challenging and disruptive, but I also have to make sure that the challengers and disruptors are in the right roles where we want challenge and disruption versus we want folks that are really just driving the business forward. So for me, it's a little bit of a custom fit between personality styles and the skill sets are in. So I would always want a disruptor when we're thinking about creative and creativity, go to market strategies. I probably want somebody who is more even keel, steady state, very process driven. Same thing with account management processes, everything, you know, I'm going a long way to answer your question, but I would say that for me, just to wrap it up, it would be grit. It would be again, this hands-on approach. But then the other thing too, is just always assuming the best in others. And I know, assuming the best in others, people can misinterpret emails, they can misinterpret text messages, they can misinterpret a lot of things. I really encourage people to have a good, strong communication bedrock because you don't have that. You can't communicate well. You can't do any of the other things we're talking about. So yeah. I, maybe that's a really long-winded way of saying no, I love it. Skills. I've been taking I've been taking some notes here. So I got some things I want to follow up with. How about there? the fact that I'm like, you really need to get tight with your communication? And I spent 20 minutes talking about <laughs> how we need to just get tighter communication. Listen, it's clear to me. There's clarity for me. I love it. So first off, I'm not sure if you read the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. Highly yeah, recommend it. You read it. Great probably. book. So that's yeah. really spot on in terms of yeah. that type of behavioral personality. One of the things that I think a lot of hiring leaders make a mistake about is that they're 
interviewing individuals and they look at hiring this individual isolated to the rest of their team. And so you called out something really important in that your entire team and that dynamic is super, super important in terms of your ability to thrive and have a productive team. It'll surprise nobody that when it comes to the DISC assessment, I'm a high D, a high I, mid, low S, mid C. So I like to surround myself with people that are going to augment some of those areas that I would consider weaknesses, and then also be able to have specialized against the role. So I think that's really- And I've had, I'm sure you've had this too. I've had a team of a lot of D's and I's, and it's hard because we talk over each other. We're the same as you, right? We talk over each other. We're like hyper, a lot of energy because that's where we get our energy from versus the C's who are much more contemplative. And then people are like- Hey, is him or her adding anything to this meeting? Because they're really quiet. In the meantime, they are processing all this information. They're taking great notes or bringing it back to their team. And like, it is so important not to, again, not to be this kind of culture is like everything. Because all it takes, I, I forget what it was. I'm sure I saw it online or something. But if you could have the greatest and smartest person in the room, but if they are toxic to the culture, they're not trusted. And if they're not trusted, you're dead. Like yeah. you can't do anything. Like Peter Drucker says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. You're definitely preaching to the choir when it comes to this. I would much rather have a team that's cohesive, even if they're B plus players, than have a couple talented assholes that ruin it for everybody. Totally agree. For me, it's really important that now listen, you want the A plus people and have them all be a unified team. That's the ideal scenario. But if you had to choose one or the other, I definitely don't want people that are going to disrupt that apple cart. And here's what it comes down to. And this is really what you were saying. I believe that one of the most underrated aspects of life is benefit of the doubt, right? When you have the benefit of the doubt, if somebody's reacting to you poorly, Mm -hmm. you should probably be thinking to yourself, why don't I have the benefit of the doubt with this person? Why are they not thinking that the best in this situation or they think I have malintent? And then if you really can dive into that, a lot of time you can try to dissect and have some self-awareness and figure out what's wrong in this relationship. The analogy I always use is when you're first dating somebody and you move in, and you leave the fridge open, she'll walk by and politely close the fridge. Six Mm -hmm. months later, when things aren't going as well, and you leave the fridge door open, all of a sudden, you're the most unthoughtful jerk on the planet. And it's because you don't (laughs) have that same benefit of the doubt. So I think that's- I'm going to be honest, it sounds like you're speaking from direct personal experience right now. Listen, I've been married to my wife for 15 years, so we're good. Maybe some (laughs) previous experiences for sure, though. So do you have a favorite question that you love to ask in an interview? Yeah, I've got a couple. Can I answer with a couple? Please. Okay. One, I like to, I, I tend to lead in a very, I don't even know what the right word is, consensus building, consensus building practice. I, I am certainly like lay out of my expectations. And if there's things that I feel like are maybe not staying as much on the rails as I'd like, I give explicit feedback, but a lot of the decisions I make, I like to do in a consultative collaborative fashion. So one of the questions I always ask is describe a time when you disagree with the boss, because I expect that. And frankly, I appreciate that. I don't, I want people to challenge me. I'm going to challenge people. And that's a very debate makes great or whatever. That's a healthy, I think a healthy thing, as long as it's done in a healthy manner. So that's one of the questions I ask is describe a time when you disagree with your boss. Another kind of in that vein is on the flip side of that, as a leader, how do you motivate those to follow you? I think that's not always easy. It's assumed, hey, I'm a nice guy. People are just going to follow what I say. And that's, there's more to it. And then the last thing I ask is what's your favorite thing about your current job? And I think those three questions help me understand how they manage up, how they manage down and the things that motivate them. I think those are fantastic. I especially love the disagreeing with the boss. Wow. You're really putting somebody in a spot because we've all had disagreements. How do you handle it? What was it about? How did you come to a good outcome and resolution? I love that. I'm stealing that from my future interviews, Ovi. Good, good stuff. Totally. There. The other thing too is imagine a world in which you were surrounded by yes men and yes women. That's not a way to evolve. 
It so, says a lot about your leadership style. It says right away. And if I'm, if you ask me that question interview and I'm coming to work for you right away, I know you're somebody that is okay with questioning and being challenged in the appropriate way, of course. Yeah. And that yeah. wants to be able to have open discussion about things that you don't know at all, which by the way, is 80% of leaders, especially at the level that you're at. Sometimes that can be the case where you totally. know, it's kind of my way or the highway. Yeah. Yeah. I would say don't know it all because I would agree. I don't know. it all. <laughs> I would just say that I've got enough experience in doing a lot of these things, but I do not, if you told me to go run an SEO campaign for you today, I'm not going to do it as well as the person who's doing it at our building today, because she's an expert in that space and knows it really well. But I do think as long as the pushback is coming with um, a thoughtful, I wouldn't say approach, just a thoughtful now as to what the pushback is about, there's thought behind it. That to me is great. We just, we hired an account executive a month ago. She's doing a great job. And I wrote her note over the weekend and she wrote me back, basically disagreeing with my assessment. And she laid out the reasons why. And I'm like, one month in, she's telling the CMO, I don't agree with you. And here's why. And I was had such appreciation for it that I'm like, that's, I know a good hire because of that. Not because she was argumentative. She wasn't. She was just saying, hey, I see what you're saying, but here's what I'm seeing and here's why. And I'm like, mm, you know what? You're closer to it than I am and you're making a really good point. That's a good push. I absolutely love that. And I agree. I think that's a stellar sign for how she's going to be going forward, especially with the approach that you take and the way they get to the answer that they did. They can make you rethink something through that. I think that's just so insightful for you as a leader and as a manager. And it means that you've got somebody in your team that you want to be in a foxhole with. So I think that's oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. if, if I had to ask you for the most memorable interview experience you've had, whether you were interviewing or mm. whether you were interviewing somebody else. What comes to mind? Good, bad, don't have to name names. We just want to hear the stories. God, I've taken a lot of interviews. <laughs> to, Did you have one where maybe I've you got on a whiteboard and you were scripting things out and anything that comes to mind? There was like, like I did at one time I was interviewed and they were asked like how many golf balls fit in a school bus. And I was like, seriously, you're going to be the person that asked that question. All right. Which I get it. They want to see how you think strategically and all that. I would say on the plus side, there was a, a big company that I interviewed with and I'd never seen anything like the, what I guess I would just call like the solicitation process. It was, and it wasn't like a CMO role or even a VP role. I think at the time it was like a director of marketing. Not that there's, not that director of marketing is a nothing job. It's a very big job, sure. but it felt like I was interviewing for an executive level job. So I arrived in the city when I arrived. I checked in, I don't, this company is so big. They just have inroads with the city itself. But when I checked into, they had the car that I could go and rent. Not that I care about the car, but when I checked into, I think it was Hertz. They were like, oh, welcome. Here's your welcome packet about the company. I'm like, this is the car rental company that's giving this? Okay. So it's amazing welcome packet. They have um, basically a cubicle set up for me to sit at, work out all day, has my name on it, mugs. I meet with everybody. I met with the very senior leaders of the company all kinds of, I just felt really loved. And it felt like a company that clearly cares a ton about its employees. And honestly, it wasn't even like the quality of the stuff was good, which is to say, it wasn't like they put a lot of money into it. They put a lot of thought into it. Hold on. It so here's what I do. We love candidate experience here at this company. This kind of stuff is what we get excited about. Can we shout them out? Can we say what company it was? Who's doing a great job with that? Microsoft. Microsoft. So they did an incredible job. You flew into Seattle. It sounds like a Redmond and they, from soup to nuts, you felt that throughout the experience. 100%. 100%. And how did that make you feel? It, it, I don't see it on the resume. I, so it doesn't sound like it ended up working out, but you had to feel yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, cause ultimately it didn't work for a couple of different reasons. I know back in the day, I don't know if it's true anymore. They would pay for employee benefits 
everything. You paid zero dollars. I had a friend whose baby was born in a NICU in the NICU for 10 weeks. He paid zero dollars, zero. Mm -hmm. But it's not because, yes, they make a lot of money, but it's because they chose to put their employees before, in this case, their profits, right? Or their you choose where to invest your resources. Whether you make a lot of money or not, it doesn't matter. It's what are you prioritizing as important? And your employee experience and your candidate experience, they should be shouted out for that. That is a very positive thing. And it's obviously left an imprint on you. And, and I know people who work there too have had similar experiences. So yeah. I love to yeah. hear that. But I think there's good value in that because I really want to highlight the companies that are doing things well because so often it can be very few and far between. So yeah. I, I really appreciate you bringing it up. When you miss on somebody, okay, because we all miss on somebody from time to time, yeah. can you think back to a theme or something that you look back at that you wish you would have done differently in those situations? Yeah. What, it, how do you miss when you miss? Yeah, it's usually from one of two things. It's skill set or culture. It's always one of those two things. And then there's been one other one, which I don't really know how, frankly, I could use your advice on this, how to screen for it. But I've had it a couple of times where people have come in for two, three weeks and quit because clearly they're just taking a job because they've got other things that are percolating. I'm not quite sure how to screen for that. But on the skill set and culture piece, I would say I've definitely missed, and I talk about that SEO because I've missed in that before. If you don't have somebody who knows which questions to ask and can really probe, hey, can you show me a portfolio? Can you talk to me about how you approach the problem of building a visual identity system? What does a brand guide mean to you? What are the steps you would take in building a brand guide? How do you think about, give me examples of where you've used unit economics to make decisions, like really specific skill set questions need to be asked and certifications I think now matter more than they have before. Google AdWords certifications, SEO certifications. That shows not only that they have the they should have the technical um, skill sets to get done, but it also goes back to the grit. It also goes back to they are making a personal investment themselves, which speaks volumes about their character, in my opinion. So I think certifications are something else that I look for. But I've missed on those because I didn't do the things that I just said I was doing. I didn't ask enough technical questions. I didn't look for the certifications. And then on the culture side, that's a really hard one. Let me tell you what happened. And then I can tell you what I think. Listen, I you've given me all this marketing expertise. Allow me to share something yeah, with you. Please tell me what I should do. So I've hired people like the skill set thing, I think is relatively black and white for the most sure. part. I and mean, you're still going to get in there. And we always look at the 30, 60, 90 day cycle to make sure. And frankly, you know, one of the things is we try and give good projects within 60 days or really discrete projects within 60 days, as opposed to just throwing them in. And they're just in the mix of things like very discreet. When I hire a videographer, there's discrete projects a videographer is going to work on in their first 60 days. Hire a creative director. There's discrete projects. A creative director is going to work on in the first days. So here's my question, but I guess back to you on the culture side. We, I've hired people before where they seem like they're great, they're nice, it's going to be a good culture fit. And then there's just maybe the sort of an antagonistic style that you didn't necessarily know or a passive aggressive style. It's more of a communication style than anything else. And that communication style starts to build this they talk over people, they interrupt meetings, they don't manage their calendar well, they, are, they take too long to respond to things like I don't know how you screen for that, but it's yeah. definitely happened in every job that I've ever been a part of. I'm sure every job everybody's been a part of, there's always folks that had you known what you know now, you probably would have given it a second look. So I don't know how to screen for that. Yeah. I think there's a bunch of different answers here. So let me start here. Interviewing is hard, right? Especially because it's like going on three or four dates and then getting married, right? And you think you're making good decision with the information you have, but everybody can put on their best face or can sometimes deceive, right? In those types of situations to get an outcome that they want couple of things that come to mind for me, right? So I, I think 
the correlation on motivation and why if this person's motivated by money and you're offering them a lateral or a 5% raise, or if this person's motivated by this type of manager, or they wanted to be in this type of industry, it has to make sense for you from very early on in the process. And then you have to revalidate that throughout the interview process. So that's one aspect of it, right? It has to make sense. And their motivation has to be aligned with what you and your company offers, right? The next thing I would say to you is that onboarding experience is really key. If you've had a few situations where two or three weeks in somebody's, you know, up ended up getting another offer, no, looking at that onboarding experience, checking in, seeing what their engagement level is, doing an honest assessment with them a week in, two weeks in. How are you feeling? How are you getting along with the team? What are you seeing? What's your observations? What's your assessment? That'll give you some insight into somebody who's really baked in and committed to what they're seeing so far versus somebody who's half in, half out. I think I would always welcome that you be direct with somebody. Hey, we're going to make you an offer. And part of being in this offer is I know you're a very talented person. I'm sure you have lots of opportunities. We'd like that once you commit to our opportunity that we're ready to go forward and that you're not going one toe in the pool, not fully committed. And so if that's the situation, I understand it. I totally get it. But let us know because we really want to make an offer to somebody that's committed and that wants to be there. And I think the last thing I would do is maybe set the table with, hey, here are here's what I'm about. Here's what's important to me. Here's who I am, good, bad, or indifferent. I do this a lot of times when I hire people directly from my team. This is how I work and how I operate, and I'm not doing it to be narcissistic. I just want them to know what they're walking into, what my pet peeves are, what I appreciate, what I think is important, and what I'm looking for. And so they can look at that and get a distillation of what I'm going to focus on and maybe some of the areas that you know, irrational or not, are areas that I find to be important and key qualities. And I think the other thing is, here's our culture. Here's our team culture. Because it's one thing to talk about your organizational culture, but you have to say, hey, listen, we are a punctual group. We build on consensus here. We are a group that wants to hear out different ideas and then disagree and commit, whatever it may be. I think if you do, to me, the most, we always get into this idea because interviewing can be tough because you're trying to attract somebody while also doing your due diligence to make sure that they're the right person. And sometimes those things can feel very conflicted. My take would be, do your qualification as much up front, do your sell and your excitement up front. But as you get deeper into the process and it gets more serious, you have to be direct about who you are, what you're about, because it's really about match. It's not about you know, making somebody think you're your best self like you would on a blind date or them doing that to you. It's about being as direct as possible about who you are and what you're about for good or for good or worse. And then again, it's not, hey, this is a bad or a good thing. It's a fit thing. And if you fit here, this is what it is. I think if you do that up front, even before they get an offer and kind of level set and say, this is what's important to us and this is what I'm about. And then you manage that onboarding experience and check in. I think you can avoid a lot of those situations where things don't end up working out. And so then I would work with your team very much on that person's first day, that first week, how they get their laptop, how they get their training, how they get whatever it is they need and they get. We all know that first 30 days can really be a big deal breaker on whether somebody stays with your company long-term, whether it's in four weeks or a year and they leave. So I just think being upfront in the interview process and then managing that onboarding experience upfront, you can avoid a lot of those issues. Yeah. Couldn't, could not agree with you more. And that first 30 days to your point is so incredibly critical. I think and a lot of the great managers do that today. They take that first week, the first two weeks, first 30 days to make sure to get that feedback. And what you do with the feedback obviously is equally important, but that's great. I appreciate that. That's super helpful. Yeah. Hope that helped. I would give every single one of my managers and I do this discretionary budget to take that person out to lunch, to learn that person. We like to look at this. This is not a job here at MSH. This is a career. This is, we want you to be here for the long term, And so that's why those first months, that first weeks can be so impressionable on both sides. So level setting about who we are and what's important to us. And then obviously creating an experience and curating experience that's going to excite them and make them want to stay engaged, I think is really important. All right. 
Lots of good stuff there. We got a ton of the marketing. We got a ton of the hiring. Let's follow up here because I want to I want to wrap up as we get to the close of the podcast. So yep. I'm interested, CMO at a Fortune 500 organization like AmeriLife, tell us what a day in the life is like. And I know you got a bunch of meetings, but maybe let me ask this a different way. When you go home at night and you've had a great day, a very productive day, you feel great, right? Yep. What happened in that day? I will tell you again, not to be on the culture train too much, but like the culture here is fantastic. So the executive group, my peer group, I consider them friends. Clearly, we've got business drivers, business objectives, we work together, but there's such a sense of mutual respect, candor, fun, as well as just focus. We work together on how we think about the next year, three years, five years. What are the things we need to focus on? And those decisions are made collectively. They're made in a room together. They are made with inputs brought in from different groups. And because there's just so much cross-departmental work, marketing, sales, IT, finance, I mean, they all work together, obviously. I've worked at organizations before where regardless of the level, the peer group is not necessarily in sync. And that to me, it's not a make or break thing. It's less than ideal. And I would say it's super ideal here at AmeriLife that, that because we've got such a good fraternal, and I mean that both men and women that are in this, this executive group specifically, but I think it goes further down, the peer groups are so strong and that's really a testament to the culture and our CEO who's driven that culture. But a good day for me is problem solving. That's my, that's the day every day. It's, AmeriLife is interesting. AmeriLife owns 70 plus companies. So it's not a house of brands. It's, it's not even a branded house. It's really a house of independent marketing organizations, independent companies. We call, they're called IMOs because they're independent. So every day you wake up and it's like a new challenge. I need a website. I need some thought leadership. I want to be in Wall Street Journal. I want to have a Facebook page. I need help building out my Tableau instance, whatever the case may be. So a good day for me, and a lot of them are really great days, to be honest, is just helping to think through and to help solve problems and really facilitate a very specific outcome with very specific actions and very specific timelines. There are days that doesn't happen, to be totally clear. There are days that we don't define our outcomes. We don't define our due dates. Those are less than ideal days, but we always learn from those days. I would say more often than not, that's not the case. It's more often than not the case where we're, we are solving problems by putting plans in place. And frankly, some of the problems are things we've never encountered before, which is what's really cool about working for a private equity-backed company and not being public is that we have a lot of autonomy to responsibly think about solution sets for just challenges that other institutions may have a ton of red tape around them because they need to have them. That's not necessarily the case here. Again, I use the word responsible because that is the operative word. We are responsible, but we, we move super fast, which is so refreshing for me. Yeah. yeah. So people ask me, what is it you love about your job? And the way that I distill it is I get paid to come work with people I like, my friends, and solve problems together. And so this whole idea of you, you don't work with your friends, you come in, go home, keep personal, like, I just think that's a bunch of bullshit. And here's why. Anytime <laughs> you think about a team, sports yeah. team, that you've enjoyed yeah. being on and that yeah. had success, I bet that you enjoyed the company or at least respected yeah. the people that you work with, right? Same thing at work, same yeah. thing in a group project. I'm not saying you can't have success if you're not all best friends, but gosh, does it make it more sustainable and feel better when you're coming and working with people that you like and respect? So I think that's something that we should look at. I think that's something that we should value. And I think totally. it's tremendously important anywhere I work. 
I know yeah, that. absolutely. And also just being in the foxhole, right? Solving these problems, all experiences and some are small and some are huge, but they're all experiences that you share together. And every time you share and you triumph over those experiences, you're forging a tighter bond. And if we all go our separate ways, we're still going to reflect back on that big project we worked on 10 years ago and what a pain in the butt it was, but what the outcome was like every win is another, it's forming an even tighter bond, in my opinion with the groups that you're working with. So I, I couldn't agree with you more on the working with friends is totally- We're very well aligned. We're very well aligned. And I think both of us feel pretty fulfilled because we're coming to work and working with people that we like and respect. And that's really the key to it. Absolutely. Is there anything you're working on right now that you're super juiced about? Anything that you get out of bed in the morning? You're like, oh, I'm very excited about this program or this objective. Yeah, there's so much going on right now. I'm really excited about. We've got, again, I talked about our group as a central service for all the companies that AmeriLife is invested in. So a lot of what we do is provide services. So one of the things I'm really excited about, we have a group that's working on an initiative called Your Digital Lab. And basically what it is, it's a one-stop shop for anybody who needs access to digital marketing support. And I mean that in its broadest terms. So you can go online, you can book a consultation, you can have a consultation, you can buy one of the packages, you can buy an a la carte service. And by the way, we would argue that our packages are competitively priced and that our services are just as good, if not better, than what you find in the open market. Uh, no offense to any of our friends in the advertising agency space. We still use agencies for things that we need maybe more specialized skills in, but that's one of the things I'm super proud of the team on is we, if you think about our network, it's over 300,000 agents that we have today within AmeriLife. And that's just on the health side of the business doesn't even include the wealth side. So there is ample opportunity for, I should say, not ample opportunities, ample demand for services that we've built in-house. We have also built a proprietary lead generation system. You can imagine a lot of our work is done through B2B leads and B2C leads. That's a in-house from the ground up, all new marketing technology stack and new, um, effectively new strategic partnerships to help us build out this proprietary system where people can get leads on their phone, on their computer, wherever they may be acting and they can pay prices that are competitive and they're all compliant leads, which is really obviously instrumental for our space. We're rolling out new radio broadcasts like much like this podcast capabilities. So we are outfitting a lot of our customers and clients with radio shows, media buying, podcasts. So there's a ton of stuff going on right now that I'm really proud about, but I guess the headline there would be just creating what we call our marketing value offer or centralized center of excellence for all things marketing, which has just been over the last 18 months exploded and been so much fun. I love that. All right, yeah. I've kept you a long time. So I'm going to ask you one more question. This is the last yeah. one. I want to ask you if you have one bit of career advice that you know now that maybe you didn't know early on in your career, but you wish you did, what would that be? For people seeking jobs or people actively in jobs? Yeah, let's say somebody early in their career, they want to get into marketing and they're listening to Ovi and they're like, Ovi, give me one nugget of advice that's going to help me in my career going forward. Network, got a network, figure out how to network. It, insert yourself, be assertive, show up, go places, meet people. I guess that's the best thing I can say is meet people. There's no better substitution for networking than anything, in my opinion. Hear that, kids? Can't be no new friends. Doesn't work that way. Got to make friends, got to network, got to build that network. I love it. Ovi, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much Thank for you. a little bit with us. Yeah, you I'm got it. I'm looking forward to hearing from you in the future. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.